From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll explore one of the district maps submitted to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and why it isn't under consideration. We'll learn about a new documentary from Milwaukee PBS about Al Capone's connections to Wisconsin. It's fascinating that this local history is really American history. And it turns out that Wisconsin may have been Al Capone's happy place to vacation. Plus, we'll look at Latino Arts' 11th Annual Guitar Festival, happening this weekend, and the opportunities it offers to young guitarists. They'll do workshops on what it's like to have a, a career in playing classical guitar, and then of course, the work with the Wapango music. So what's happened is that overall, uh, it's grown into something that people really look forward to. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. If you pay attention to Wisconsin politics, it's been hard to get away from the issue of redistricting. Late last year, the Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned the current state legislative maps and ordered that new district maps must be drawn. Seven district maps were submitted, but only six will be considered by the court. The seventh was drawn by our first guest, Matt Petering. Petering is an associate professor of industrial and manufacturing engineering at UW-Milwaukee. He's also the owner of District Solutions, a company based around his map-making algorithm that he believes is the best way to get fair maps in Wisconsin. He joins me now to talk about this. Matt, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you, Joy. Glad to be here. There were a number of different maps that were submitted to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. What makes your maps different from the other maps that have been submitted? Yes, a total of seven maps were submitted, and mine is the only one that was made by an algorithm. I had been working for five, six years on programming up and writing the computer code for an algorithm specifically for this moment to be able to submit to the Wisconsin Supreme Court a map made by my algorithm. And I was really happy with the results. I think it uh, looked really good uh, compared to the others. Now, why do you view this approach to map making as, I, I don't know if inherently superior is the right way to put that, but as ultimately being better than how other people created their maps? Yeah, well, I think one thing I should mention, first of all, is that I'm not proposing that all of humanity subordinate itself to an <laughs> algorithm. Um, what I'm proposing is that the humans be able to select from the best possible options. And the algorithm can actually create many options. Um, and so that's a really neat thing about an algorithm. It works much faster than a human. So I had hundreds of maps that I could pull out of my archives when the court issued its December 22nd opinion. I could pull out <clears throat> and say, oh, which of the maps I've already generated up to this point best fit those criteria and just kind of pull that out and then submit that one to the court. So I think that algorithm is also, it makes better maps and it also is unbiased. The algorithm is not looking, it doesn't have eyes to look at detailed parts of the state to know, oh, I'm drawing in the Madison area. 
oh, I know there's an incumbent in this area and I want to protect an incumbent here or I know I want this particular community to work out this way. The algorithm works holistically at the state as a whole to try to get just an overall really good map for the state as a whole but does not really specifically focus in on any one area or another whereas a human might be likely to perhaps be a little biased when drawing the map in certain areas. So, so overall, an algorithm, I think, is less biased than a human. It makes maps faster than a human, and it makes better maps than a human. So I think there's a lot of neat uh, advantages to it. Now, there are, of course, uh, a number of complaints that people have had about the maps that have been submitted, drawing districts that would essentially insulate a number of candidates from the ballot box, a main complaint about gerrymandering itself. When you're drawing a map, with your algorithm. What are the metrics that you use to decide where those lines are going to be? To be honest, the algorithm, as well as people, when we do draw maps, we aren't really drawing lines. What we're doing is we're assigning little tiny pieces of territory to districts, and we're assigning that and saying, does this go in District 5 or does this go in District 6? And that might be a little tiny piece, like a little census block or a little voting ward. Now, so the algorithm is really something that's trying to do just a really good overall job at uh, getting good results for a variety of criteria. When we do redistricting, there's a lot of criteria that have to go into play. There's several that just create a legally acceptable map. But there's trillions of possible maps that are legally acceptable. Then we have other criteria to judge which maps are better than others. And we use we look at things like political neutrality. We're looking at the compactness or the niceness of the shapes of the districts. Are they kind of like squares or circles, which are really nice shapes? Or are they really strewn out like spaghetti diagram? And we also look at the competitiveness of districts. And also, do we split up counties? Do we really slice and dice up counties into many, many different districts or try to keep counties relatively intact entirely within a district? And same thing for municipalities. So we have a lot of different criteria that come into play. So all of these are simultaneously being looked at by the algorithm, all from a holistic perspective, where you're trying to get good results for all of these simultaneously. Going back to your question, though, about incumbents being insulated, that, I would say, falls under the category of competitiveness, of do we have competitive districts, or are these districts rather lopsided? And certainly, uh, that's one of what I consider to be the five major criteria of map making. And I believe we should try to make as many competitive districts as possible. And in the map that I did submit to the court, um, which was later disqualified, but it can be compared to the other maps that were submitted, my map did have significantly more competitive districts um, than the other maps by quite a bit. So I was very happy with that. According to my metrics, we had about about 30% of the districts in both the Assembly and the Senate were highly competitive. And I think the next best map might have been in the low 20s for the percent of districts that were competitive. Now, does that speak to something that I've heard called the efficiency gap? Yes, it's a little related. The efficiency gap is something that is a measurement of partisan neutrality, not necessarily how close the individual districts are, but how close the overall map is as a whole to being fair. 
And the lower this efficiency gap is, the better. It's in percentages. And like the, the map I submitted to the court had an efficiency gap of about 1% in the Assembly and 1% in the Senate. The other maps had, if you add up the efficiency gaps for the Assembly plus Senate, all of them were roughly 5% or greater. I believe the Senate Democrats map was the, the second best in that metric at 5%. And then I believe some of the other parties had six or seven. And then the legislature's map was measuring at uh, really high if you add up the set, probably about 20% for the Senate and Assembly combined. So the efficiency gap is definitely an important metric we can use for measuring up the political neutrality of a map of how fair it is treating Republicans and Democrats. But you can do that and have a low efficiency gap while having very few competitive districts. Or you can also have a low efficiency gap with having many competitive districts. So I believe it's good to uh, have many competitive districts and have a low efficiency gap. One thing I'm not clear on. So the court decided that since you weren't part of the initial lawsuit, they wouldn't consider your maps. But if the legislature and the governor are unable to come to a consensus, which right now it seems like they are unlikely to come to a consensus, is the Wisconsin Supreme Court allowed to make their own maps or do they have to choose from those that have been submitted by these parties? Uh, Yes. Well, the plan A is to choose from one of the maps submitted by the parties. And the court has hired a few consultants with a lot of experience in this matter to judge whether or not any one of the six or all of them kind of are are good enough to be just picked and selected and implemented as our new map. Now, there is a clause, though, that says that if these consultants do not find any of those six maps suitable, that they can craft their own map and present it to the court for consideration. I believe the court does, of course, make the final decision about all of these matters. So there is still a possibility, although I'm not sure how likely, that maybe those consultants will craft their own map and not select one of the six that was given to them by the parties. Hmm. When you think about the maps that are still on the table versus the map that you submitted, what do you think the state would be missing out on if they choose one of these plans versus your own? Well, thank you for the question. I Yes, I was very happy with the way <clears throat> that my algorithm did compared to the other six submissions. Yeah, my map had the lowest efficiency gap by quite a bit. It was the most politically neutral. Um, it did have the nicest shapes for the districts by far. It also had the most number of competitive districts by quite a bit. We also finished second for county splitting among the seven submissions. And I believe in the last category, we were not winning all categories, but we were finishing fifth for municipal splitting. But overall, I mean, we're really, I think, missing out on quite a bit because my map was doing very well across, you know, the whole gamut of of the criteria that we use to judge maps. Um, and it was definitely the most politically fair by my metrics now, now, it's interesting to note different people have different ways of looking at this. I felt my map was really hitting proportionality, the nail on the head for that. In a proportional map, given recent statewide voting trends, the Democrats have 51% of the statewide vote, Republicans 49%. And in a proportional map, that would mean the Democrats would be expected to carry 51 assembly seats, Republicans 48 and Democrats would carry 17 Senate seats, Republicans 16. And my map was really hitting the nail on the head for that. 
I believe the other maps, the, the, the best they were doing was about 49 seats for the Democrats in the assembly, 50 for the Republicans in the assembly. And so that, that's a two-seat difference in the assembly. We'll see what happens. We can't predict with perfection, but according to my predictions, my map was the only one that was predicted to give the Democrats a majority in the assembly, um, and none of the other maps were expected to do that. Sure. Well, we will see what the future holds, but Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you so much, Joy. Glad to be here. Matt Petering is an associate professor of industrial and manufacturing engineering at UW-Milwaukee and the owner of District Solutions. The Wisconsin Supreme Court will not be considering Petering's map if they ultimately choose the state's new legislative maps. We know that redistricting can be confusing. At wuwm.com, you can find more of our coverage on this issue. And tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll have the first conversation in a series we're doing all about redistricting here in Wisconsin. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Chuck Quirmbach, filling in for Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. Well, hi, J.R. It's been a busy few weeks. Yeah, it's never, never dull in this place, I'll put it that way. You know, one of the uh, big stories that's still going on is this attempt by Republican state lawmakers to come up with a referendum for the April ballot that would ask voters about approving a ban on abortions uh, after 14 weeks of pregnancy. Why is the Republican Party, some of them, bringing this forward now? Well, they want to change the conversation. Uh, They've been getting their butts handed to them at the ballot box lately because the conversation has been about whether abortion should be legal in Wisconsin, period. They want to change that discussion to when should it be legal. Go back and look, 2022, uh, Governor Evers ran, really kind of made the 1849 law highlight of his campaign against Tim Michaels. 2023, Janet Protosiewicz, a liberal, made that law a highlight of her, an abortion uh, in general, a highlight of her campaign for the Supreme Court and won. So Republicans feel like if they're talking about what the cutoff should be, not whether it should be legal, they'll be in better shape. And to them, you know, if you talk about the current ban, which is after 20 weeks, moving to 14 weeks, they think it's popular with the public. They point to other countries in Europe that have it around 12 to 14 weeks to make it that's a reasonable compromise. What's interesting is the biggest anti-abortion groups in the Capitol aren't real big fans of this bill. Um, they have noted that they would prefer to wait until the lawsuit or the 1849 law is over. Uh, just a reminder that a Dane County judge ruled that law doesn't apply to consensual abortions, but only to feticide. So we expect the state Supreme Court to have final say on that at some point. We're waiting on Joel Romanski, the Sheboygan County DA, to file his appeal in that case. I have to say that I have never seen so many Republicans not in line with the major anti-abortion groups in the state, and they only got 53 Republican votes out of, what, 64 when this passed the Assembly. Have you ever seen that before, this uh, disconnect between Republicans and the anti-abortion groups? Uh, not frequently, and you know, part of it is that 
for the anti-abortion groups, it's not about electoral success. It's about, to them, it's a moral issue. And so they're not as worried about what that means at the ballot box for Republicans in general, whereas Republicans are going, okay, if we can't figure this out, we're going to have problems getting people elected. Oh, by the way, we're expecting new maps uh, to be imposed by the state Supreme Court, and those maps are going to be much more favorable to Democrats. Republicans have been able to be a little bit out of step with the public on some issues like abortion, marijuana, things like that, but not really pay a price because the seats are pretty safe. Their, their majorities are really durable with those maps. If you get a true 50-50 map, that's going to be interesting to see how it impacts the discussion in the Capitol on some of these issues if you see more movements toward a more moderate position. Okay, so the state Senate uh, has to still take up this abortion bill with the governor already promising a couple times a veto. It's not going to become law. It's not going to go to voters for a referendum. I mean, kind of wondering if the Senate will even bother at this point to take it up. You mentioned a moment ago the redistricting case. There is a redistricting bill from the Republicans in the Assembly and Senate. Governor Evers also promising to veto that. What's the skinny on that effort? Republicans are trying to make the best of a bad situation. There were six maps into the court uh, by a deadline earlier in January. I went through all of them a couple weeks ago and figured out kind of how they looked. And in terms of paired lawmakers, that's where you have a district with two incumbents in it. The governor's got 15 pairs in the assembly. In the Senate, he's got a half dozen, but one of those has three Republicans in it. And Republicans are going, okay, you know, that's not great, but it's better than other maps. I saw one map that had 19 pairs in the assembly. Another map had eight pairs in the Senate. And look, there are more Republicans than Democrats, so most of the pairs are Republicans. That's kind of how it works on the numbers. So to Republicans, it's like, how do you try and get something that at least you can live with and that's not as bad as it could be? And they're really worried what the Supreme Court's going to do. This was their answer. Take the governor's map, make a couple of changes. They call them tweaks. Uh, Democrats call them incumbent protection, but make some changes to have fewer pairs and then try and sell it as, hey, this is the vast majority of what Governor Evers wants. He should sign this deal because we're trying to compromise. And, you know, on the one hand, there's a threat out there that the, the U.S. Supreme Court could step in and take over in this case and say, hey, what the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin is doing is not proper. And there are issues here and you wouldn't get a new map for 2024 in the Assembly and Senate. But the chances of that are not real great. And talking Republicans are not real confident they can get the U.S. Supreme Court's attention. So this was their move. Try and find a way to do something a little bit better. Now, one of the challenges is they change the governor's maps. Um, by doing that, you give the governor and Democrats wiggle room to say, hey, it's not really my maps, the governor's maps. So they're trying to pull a fast one. At one point, uh, some of the leaders and the Republican leaders tried to get the governor's maps without changes before the assembly. Democrats kind of balked. And what I was told, you know, Republicans were kind of like, why wouldn't they take up the governor's maps if that's, you know, what they want? And I was told by Democrats that they, one, don't trust Robin Voss, the assembly speaker, and two, there's no assurance the Senate would take it up. If you look at the votes on those amended maps from the, uh, use the governor's proposals foundation, there were four Republicans vote against it in the Senate. Now, the Republicans in the assembly were all unified, but the bottom line is, at this point, the governor is planning to veto these amended versions of the maps, and we're going to likely get a, a map from the state Supreme Court at some point. The question is, how good is it for Democrats, and uh, how do Republicans live with it after that? And for voters, listeners, uh, stay tuned yet as to what legislative district you're going to be in this fall. And if you're considering a bid for office, hold tight on that, too. Yeah, because uh, 
We're expecting maps probably by mid-March. That's what the Elections Commission has asked for. So uh, there are a series of de deadlines coming up that could have something earlier, but we should know by mid-March what the, the landscape's going to be for the fall. And I say uh, if you're running for office, there's a, a state Senate seat that's going to be open in Milwaukee as the governor has appointed Lena Taylor uh, to be a circuit judge of longtime lawmaker Lena Taylor, now headed to the courthouse and a uh, Senate seat where we don't quite know the boundaries yet. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. So remember, there's an effort right now to recall Robin Voss, the Assembly Speaker. The Elections Commission has said, look, we're not sure that can happen because the state Supreme Court, in its December ruling, throwing out those GOP-drawn lines, says you cannot use these maps for elections going forward. And the commission said, well, we're not sure if we even have a recall because we don't have a map. Well, if you don't have a map for recall, you definitely don't have one for a special election. So you're going to have to wait till the Supreme Court picks a map before you can actually call a special election and move forward. The flip side is, looking at the various maps proposed, five of the six keep Taylor's Senate District pretty much as is. A couple make a, sm a few small tweaks. Several have no tweaks at all. They're exactly like they are right now. And the reason is simple. Governor Evers proposed changes to Milwaukee area districts a couple years ago in his maps with the state Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected that map because it found the governor had improperly considered race in drawing lines. There are six majority black districts in the assembly in Milwaukee. He tried to add a seventh. The court found that was inappropriate. So he said, hey, I'm going to keep the map in Milwaukee basically as is for those minority districts. There are two Hispanic ones as well. That way I'm not going to get the U.S. Supreme Court's attention. I want to give them a reason to be interested in what's going on over here. So we're pretty confident that the map that uh, we have right now or had before will be what the general lines are for that district in the, the special election. So if you live in the district now, you're probably going to be in it after the new map is drawn. The uh, governor's State of the State speech is now nearly a week old it's going to come out of that speech, and are Republicans going to just ignore it and just push tax cuts? Uh, Republicans are going to ignore it for the most part. I mean, most governors I've covered, you know, they use their state of the states in odd numbered years to set the stage for their budget, and in even number of years, they set the stage for the election. This speech from Evers is a combination of, you know, a victory laugh about stuff he got done that he wanted to tout, a call to action by for the legislature to address some things, and then also signal how he's going around legislature to do things he wants to do but they don't want to do. The things he called them to do are things like expanding postpartum coverage for those on Medicaid. You can go up to a year. Right now, Wisconsin, we're at 60 days. It's a popular proposal. It passed the Senate like 32 to 1 this fall, but the Assembly's been the roadblock. I don't think that the governor putting a speech is going to change hearts and minds in the Assembly GOP caucus all of a sudden. So, you know, that stuff's not going to happen. But he also talked about making emergency contraceptive available at no cost. It was on Badger Care Plus. Uh, he found a way to seal a conservation easement deal up in northern Wisconsin after lawmakers blocked it nine months ago. So a little bit of you know, the governor doing all these things to try and say, hey, I'm still going to find a way to get what I want done if you guys aren't going to help me. Evers remarked on Friday when he was in Milwaukee at Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's event that it had been quite a week. Uh, he sort of downplayed the state of the state a little bit because he said, well, there was a presidential visit, uh, Joe Biden to Superior, a vice presidential visit, Kamala Harris to Big Bend in Waukesha County, uh, the Yellen visit to Milwaukee. I mean, he didn't even mention the week before acting labor secretary had been to Milwaukee. Why are we seeing so many Biden-Harris folks here so soon? The primary that we 
don't really have much of a primary is still two months away. Because Wisconsin is the one swing state that Biden can least afford to lose. I mean, if you look at national pundits talking about the 2024 presidential election, they will tell you that every list, every list I see has Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona on it. Now, some lists might have a Michigan or a Pennsylvania, maybe a Nevada, maybe a North Carolina, but really, truly, it's about Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona. Of those three, Wisconsin is only two in the last 44 years that has gone for the Republicans. So you can't lose that state if you want to win the White House again for Joe Biden. That was J.R. Ross of WISPolitics.com speaking with me, WUWM's Chuck Kornbach. Check out the Capitol Notes podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about the Latino Arts Guitar Festival happening this weekend in Milwaukee. But first, we'll explore the time that notorious gangster Al Capone spent in Wisconsin. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. You've heard of Al Capone, but did you know Al Capone vacationed and did business here in Wisconsin? A new documentary called Al Capone, Prohibition and Wisconsin tells the story of the gangster's ties to the state through letters about buying property in the North Woods, records of a homebrew distillery he kept in Brookfield, and interviews with his surviving granddaughter, Diane Capone. The documentary airs tonight on Milwaukee PBS, and Lake Effect Sam Wood spoke with the director Brian Ewig and producer Tracy Newman about the film and its focus on Capone's personal life. A new documentary titled uh, Al Capone, Prohibition, and Wisconsin airs tonight on Milwaukee PBS. It tells the story of Al Capone's life and friendships in Wisconsin from the North Woods to Brookfield. But Tracy, Brian, I first want to ask, you know, Al Capone passed away in 1947, and Prohibition ended in 1933, and kind of the subject matter of this film is decades old. So why is now the time for this documentary? The project started out as a story about Prohibition and the history of beer in Milwaukee. Uh, We started out, there's so much history to tell with the city that still is in the city today. Um, We started compiling stories about Prohibition and the city and the breweries and how everyone responded and made it through. And um, so we did that. And then as we started collecting more stories, we kept hearing these Al Capone stories. And we brushed a lot of them off as myths or old tales that people have told from generations down. But once we discovered these correspondence and these images from the Manitowish Waters Historical Society, between Al Capone and a land proprietor up in the North Woods, Bill Sell, that really solidified Al Capone's presence in the state of Wisconsin and lended itself to an incredible story to tell. 
Oh, and just really, really quick, the project also comes, I will say, from history, but also um, I'm obsessed with um, old film noir movies and everything film noir. So everything from the old Alfred Hitchcock movies to the Orson Welles movies. So this is also my small homage to the film noir movies. Yeah, and, and much of the documentary seems to center around interviews with Al's granddaughter, Diane Capone who seems to want to set the record straight as to the type of person Al was outside of his profession. Um, I'm curious, did she reach out to you all with the idea for this documentary, or were you all planning to reach out to her already, and you know she was just available and, and ready to talk about this? No, I, um, I started researching, and Diane really just recently um, came out of the woodwork to tell her story, for a long time, she never even told anyone that, that she was a Capone. Um, so I did a little research and reached out to her and um, she called back. I was actually on a sailboat, but she was wonderful. Um, and I couldn't wait to go interview her. I told Brian, I said, we have to go interview her. She was very candid about not only um, his bad side, but you know, she talked about his, his good side as well. Um, and I think it, it was just so interesting to hear um, these stories that that had never been told before. So a lot of it was we wanted to get this out there. Yeah, and Tracy, I'm glad you mentioned both bad side and good side because when I was viewing this film, two themes jumped out to me. Uh, one being redemption, and the other being uh, multitudes or how how one human can have multiple sides to them. And the film references the violence that Capone oversaw and references some instances of when that violence was done in Wisconsin, but it's mostly about Capone vacationing in Wisconsin, friendships he made here, as well as his attempts to redeem himself later in life. And so how should viewers compartmentalize these themes of redemption and, and multitudes with the very real violence that is typically associated with Capone and organized crime? So Brian and I are not historians. We're just here to let people tell their story. And um, we pre like to present the facts. And Diane did tell both sides uh, of her of her grandfather. Um, I think it was important for people to see that. And, you know, in the end, she talks about how he did redeem himself. And it's kind of a lesson for people. Um, you know, it's never too late to change kind of thing. Granted, yes, he did a lot of bad things, but um, there is that, you know, bit of hope for people. Um, and, and she, you know, brings that, brings that up and, and hopes that that will help other people as well. Yeah, and I think one of the important things about Diane's story is she, she was four years old when Al Capone passed away. So her memories of him are just as a grandfather and most people have very fond memories of their grandparents and grandfathers so her family history she compiled all these stories over the next 30 plus years al capone's wife ended up living well into her 70s so she ended up compiling all these stories and i think it was important for her i mean you can imagine how many different takes on al capone there have been how many different people are telling all these different stories about your grandfather some people with the name Capone were telling stories about her grandfather that may or may not have been true. So in her mind, it was very important to set this record straight, get these stories out, because like you said, she is reaching her 80s. And so it was very important to her to tell these stories. 
granddaughter's telling stories i want to i want to build on that uh brian i know you're a big fan of uh old film noir so i'm sure you know that you know mob stories mafia stories have a long history in american media i mean stretching back at least to the original scarface in 1932 which was based on al capone uh to the godfather series goodfellas sopranos um, I'm, I'm curious, as you all have made this documentary, a lot of it coming from the perspective of Diane, Al Capone's granddaughter, how would these classic films and uh, media change if they were told from the perspective of, you know, the boss's granddaughter? Yeah, I think so much of this time period and so much of the violence has been glorified and glamorized through the years. And I think that Putting this history out there, I think one of the important things about PBS is we have the ability to tell these stories without an agenda. We're not telling people what to think. All we're all we're doing is presenting history, and that's such an important part of what these letters and these images represent. This is history, and everyone has an opinion of Al Capone. Some good, some bad. Those those opinions may or may not change reading these stories and reading these letters and, and hearing these stories, but all we can do is present this history. And it's fascinating that this local history is really American history. And it turns out that Wisconsin may have been Al Capone's happy place to vacation. So in the few years that it took to make this film, did your perspectives on Al Capone change at all? You know, I don't think it did very much. Um, a lot of the historical takes we have through the movies, you even look at a lot of the themes of those movies, uh, whether it be The Sopranos, whether it be The Godfather. It's, you look at, obviously, the business end of things, but it's family. It's religion. It's those, it's those things. And that's a lot of what Diane had to say. You know, she told an interesting story that her grandma told her about... Um, her grandma used to see men on the street parked down the road, and she knew who those men were and what they were up to, but her grandmother never felt unsafe. There was always an unwritten rule that you do not go after the families, and because of that, May Capone, um, Al Capone's wife, never felt unsafe related to his business. I'll close with this. What do you all hope that people get from this documentary? I really hope that people come away with um, new knowledge of uh, history. Um, I, I think, you know, not only is the documentary entertaining, but uh, I think it sheds sheds light on the things that people didn't know. So hopefully it's it's educational. Yeah, I think everyone has an opinion about Al Capone, good, good or bad. Um, and we did not do this documentary to have any sort of agenda or to, to try to sway any sort of opinions about anything. All we were really trying to do was present history. And this is a different side of Al Capone that a lot of people aren't used to seeing. Um, again, and that's provocative in a lot of ways because it gets people thinking about norms and things they usually wouldn't think about. So again, our role is not to have an agenda or not, change opinions about anything but simply to present this this really real history that is now in the state of wisconsin connecting al capone up to manitouish waters well brian tracy thank you again so much for joining me on lake effect and i do appreciate your time 
Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. was Brian Ewig and Tracy Newman, who are the director and producer of the documentary Al Capone, Prohibition and Wisconsin. The documentary airs tonight at 8 and 9.30 p.m. on Milwaukee PBS. Let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous. Let's misbehave. Black History Month kicks off this Thursday. There are many places in Wisconsin that are significant to our state's black history. Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen speaks with Amanda Weibel from Travel Wisconsin to share a few of the places you can visit to celebrate black history next month. Amanda, let's start with the Milton House in Janesville. The historic building was a stop on the Underground Railroad. What else can you tell us about its history? The Milton House is such a unique piece of history. It's Wisconsin's last certified Underground Railroad station that can be toured. It's actually a former stagecoach inn thought to have been a stop for freedom seekers on their way to Canada. The Milton House was built by Joseph Goodrich. He was a member of the Seventh-day Baptist Church, which is a denomination that officially denounced slavery, and he moved to Rock County from Massachusetts. The museum, which is a National Historic Landmark, is located just north of Janesville in the city of Milton, and they welcome visitors year-round to learn more about its history in the Underground Railroad. What can people expect if they visit the Milton House today? You can tour the 1844 Stagecoach Inn, as well as an original log cabin from 1837 on the property, and a tunnel that was used to move freedom seekers between the two buildings. The tours last about an hour, and you'll learn about the early history of the community of Milton while walking in the same path that freedom seekers would have at the Milton House. So it's a really, really powerful tour. It's open year-round, but if you're looking to visit soon, you'll want to call ahead to make an appointment. They're currently offering tours Wednesday through Friday, uh, but tours do need to be scheduled at least 24 hours in advance. From June through August, walk-in tours are welcome, and you can check their website for hours and availability throughout the year. Next, we'll look at the Cheyenne Valley near Hillsboro. What's the story there? This is a lesser known story of Wisconsin's black history. It's the community of Cheyenne Valley in the Driftless region. In the 1800s, black settlers arrived in Vernon County with the assistance of a Quaker religious order to establish a farming community. The community quickly blossomed and they established some of the state's first integrated schools, churches, and sports team. And in the 19th century, Cheyenne Valley was the largest rural African-American settlement in Wisconsin. And what kind of things can people see if they visit there today? While sadly many of the original structures of the community are no longer standing, the Vernon County Historical Society has a great driving tour map available. And that tour takes visitors past some important locations in the formation of that community, including some round barns, former schools, the old town hall, cemeteries, and settler farms. Several of the round barns um, that were built by the son of one of Cheyenne Valley's most prominent community members are actually still in use today, and they can be seen from the tour route. Finally, let's talk about Paramount Records and how it put Grafton on the map for blues music. 
This is such a unique place to discover a piece of Black music history. So in Grafton, the city north of Milwaukee, it was once home to Paramount Records, which was instrumental in producing the early blues records. Between 1929 and 1932, the Paramount Recording Studio attracted hundreds of Wisconsin and out-of-state musicians to record. So while the studio only operated for a few years, it would produce records that would later influence some of the genre's biggest stars. The studio no longer exists, unfortunately, but Grafton honors the history of the studio and the mostly Black artists who recorded for the label with the Paramount Plaza. You can go to this public plaza and walk on their distinctive sidewalk. It resembles a piano keyboard, so it's very fun. Um, but the plaza also recognizes the studio's role in the foundational era of the blues. It has tributes to legendary blues artists like Blind Lemon Jefferson, Ma Rainey, and Charlie Patton, who is often recognized as the father of the Delta Blues. There's also an entertainment stage that hosts an array of community activities throughout the year. Well, Amanda, thank you for joining me on Lake Effect and sharing some more information about some of these Black historical sites in Wisconsin. Thanks so much for having me. For more ideas to round out your trip, visit TravelWisconsin.com. Don't take me long. Amanda Weibel is the communications officer for Travel Wisconsin. She spoke with Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen. We'll take one more break and then return to learn about the headline act at the Latino Arts Guitar Festival, happening this weekend. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. That music you're hearing is being played by Andrea Gonzalez Caballero. She is the headline performer at the Latino Arts Strings Program's annual Guitar Festival. This is the 11th year they're hosting the event with Latino Arts, and it all started as a way for young guitarists to compete and meet professionals in the field. Denora Marquez Abadiano is the director of the Latino Arts Strings Program. Andrea Gonzalez Caballero is a classical guitarist and she'll be the headliner at the event. They both join Lake Effect's Excret Nunez. The Latino Arts Strings Program is celebrating its 11th annual guitar festival this weekend, along with Latino Arts Incorporated, and that's really exciting. Dinora, how is Latino Arts celebrating its 11th guitar festival? Well, I mean, first and foremost, we're celebrating by having a wonderful, amazing guitarist, Andrea Gonzalez Caballero. We're very excited to have her. That is the biggest draw and excitement for us. But every year we have a youth competition element to the festival, which is really wonderful. We have five states in the surrounding area that are being represented. We have uh, almost 40 participants in the competition this year. So it's really wonderful. That's growing every year, and that's really great. Among the judges, we have five countries represented, so that's really wow. wonderful as well that it continues to be a very international competition in a way. And every year we offer um, the participants an opportunity to do an ensemble piece as well uh, or a style to explore a different style on their instruments. And so this year we're exploring the Mexican huapango. And so they're going to be learning 
uh, the rhythms of Wapango and the, and the whole you know the history of it and how to how to perform it. And then at the concert, they will be performing the Wapango by Moncayo, which is a classical piece uh, by um, Pablo Moncayo, Mexican composer Pablo Moncayo, based on the style of or the genre of Wapango music of Mexico. And they will be performing all all the competitors together with um, our ensemble, the Mariachi Juvenil of the Latino Arts Strings Program. So that's very different than what we've done in the past. That's beautiful. Um, how did you guys decide on the Wapango? Um, well, I mean, last year they did flamenco and they did a flamenco style piece with a, an instructor from the conservatory who's a flamenco player. And we have been exploring a lot of Wapango um, and, and trying to you know lift up the various uh, genres of our, our cultures. And so we just decided, well, that's a that's a beautiful one because it has been represented both in, both in the classical world and in the traditional uh, world of music. So we, we thought this would be a good experience for everyone. Absolutely. It sounds very beautiful and very exciting. Andrea, as Dinora mentioned, you're headlining this year's event and you've performed all around the world. I noticed you're also recently named one of today's young rising stars in classical guitar by BBC Music Magazine. I want to bring it back to the beginning of your musical career. What drew mm -hmm. you to first pick up the guitar? How were you introduced to it? Um, first of all, hello. Thank you for having me here. And I'm very excited to visit Milwaukee. It's my first time. So I'm very excited as well to see all these performances and events happening. Um, so when I was seven years old, I started playing the guitar because of my mom. She's also a guitar teacher in my hometown in Spain. It's called Eibar. It's a small city in the Basque country. And I think it was because of that, because we had the instrument at home, we had the music. So I felt connected to that idea of learning how to play the instrument that my mom had at home. And then I think that I just fell in love with the instrument and the sound and and I kept excited to continue playing it. I took it very seriously. <laughs> I took it very serious from the beginning and I started learning the repertoire, the, like the classical guitar repertoire. So yeah, I think this was the beginning of everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really wonderful. Um, I've had the opportunity, I've been listening to a few of your pieces this week in preparation for our interview. And Mm -hmm. I can really feel your passion and the way that you play and what you're playing. And it made me wonder, what do you love most about classical guitar that keeps you connected to your craft? Um, it's it's a good question. I think, I know, I feel that I can translate um, what I have in my head uh, and what I feel with this instrument. I feel that the guitar has a very warm um, sound and at the same time it can be very flexible with with the way you want to perform it. It can be very refined and classical sound, very clean, and it can be more into a different style, more folklore, more uh, like a rush. And I think that the versatility of the instrument makes me very excited about keeping the yeah, keep performing it. Andrea, you'll be performing this Saturday, uh, February 3rd. And just as a sneak peek, what can people expect to hear you play? So this will be a Spanish music repertoire. 
Um, I released an album in September about Spanish composers and most of the pieces I will perform are part of this uh, last album. Um, so you will be able to, to listen to pieces that were not composed for classical guitar. They are arrangements of big pieces like the Fallas, uh, Spanish dance, or Albany's Spanish suite for piano played in a classical guitar. And at the same time, you will find the one of the most iconic pieces uh, for classical guitar. It's called Recuerdos de la Alhambra. Um, so it's an homage to, to, to Spanish music for classical guitar and in general for uh, for orchestra and other instruments. That all sounds really beautiful. And I kind of want to go back to what you mentioned. This will be your first time in Milwaukee. Um, is there mm -hmm. something that you're looking forward to on your visit while you're here? Yeah, it's the first time. Uh, I'm very excited. I was a little bit concerned about the weather there like, <laughs> because I live in Miami. <laughs> so I'm very excited to discover the city, the the cultural landscape and visit the Latino arts because I know they are doing a great job and they are they they have many uh, events, interesting events, and I want to know the community they have there. That's amazing. And Dinora, that kind of brings me back to, to you, just to kind of wrap up and bring you back to the beginning of this festival. Why was the Guitar Festival created 11 years ago? You know, 11 years ago, we decided to create the festival in part to serve our students who we mostly serve low-income Latino youth. And even if there are other activities going around in the area, in, in the city or in Chicago, they really don't have access to them. Right. And so we wanted to create a festival that would be definitely accessible to everyone and anyone who wanted to be there. So that was a big part of it. And then as it you know, began growing, we realized there was a need in the region, especially for the um, competition side of it for that age group. Because we have students coming from Ohio, from Michigan, Minnesota, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin. We have the region where it's always being represented. So the day is a full long day. They, Students come in for the competition, they perform for the judges, then they have a, a workshop and they have master classes with the judges, you know, so some lucky kid's going to get to play directly for Andrea, as well as with Ivan Resendiz and Tran, Nanai Fujibara. I mean, there's wonderful guitarists that are going to be doing these master classes. And then they'll do workshops on what it's like to have a, a career in playing classical guitar and then of the work with the Wapango music. So what's happened is that overall uh, it's grown into something that people really look forward to, that there's some kind of a void. You know, we're, we, we don't really have that happening in the region for that age level. So there's a lot of reasons why it's an important activity, an important festival in, in our region and in our community. Well, um, Dinora and Andrea, thank you both so much for speaking with me today and telling me more about this exciting event. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ishkaret. Thank you for inviting us and just featuring this. It, it really means the world to us that you're doing that. And thank you. Dinora Marquez Abadiano is the director of the Latino Art Strings Program. Andrea Gonzalez Caballero is a Spanish classical guitarist, and she'll be the headline performer at the event. They spoke with Lake Effect's Excret Nunez. The 11th Annual Guitar Festival will take place on Saturday, February 3rd at Latino Arts and the United Community Center. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. 
If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll have NPR's Weekend Edition host, Aisha Roscoe, on the show. She'll tell us about her new book that celebrates her experiences attending an HBCU. That's tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.